We're going to look at the whole psalm. So I'll read it all. Um, I love this psalm. It's just a wonderful, wonderful prayer. This book is, of course, it's the songbook of the Bible, but perhaps just as much. It's the prayer book of the Bible. And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer never failed to point out, it is the prayer book that Jesus would have learnt. And these are the prayers of Christ as well. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust, O my God. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame, but they will be put to shame who are treacherous without excuse. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in His ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them His way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of His covenant. For the sake of Your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Who then is the man that fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way chosen for him. He will spend his days in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have multiplied. Free me from my anguish. Look upon my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. See how my enemies have increased and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness protect me, because my hope is in you. Redeem Israel, O God, from all their troubles. We're going to look at this psalm just now. Um, Again, let me say to the children... What's the first letter in the alphabet? First letter? Eden, do you know? Ah, good. What's the last letter? Josiah? Z. Okay, what's the second last letter? Married? Why? You see, you're working through it, aren't you? When you do that, you go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, and all that. You learn that. Um, This... I could ask you what the first letter was of the Hebrew alphabet, but I'm not. This song, Psalm 25, is what they call an acrostic song. And what that means is, in in the equivalent of the Hebrew alphabet, each verse begins, first verse begins with A, second B, third C, fourth D. And the reason they had a song like that was it helps you to remember things. And this is a song that, that does that right up until the last verse, verse 22. Verses 1 to 21, uh, all of them (coughs) begin with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and they begin in order. And there's actually one or two ministers here, and I feel that I ought to test them as to their knowledge of Hebrew, but that maybe would be slightly unfair, uh, because I'm not sure I would pass. But we know that the Bible, of course, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and the New Testament was written in Greek, mostly. And this is one way that God used to help people remember. So, I'm calling this, this is an ABC of prayer. 
And we're not going to go through all the letters, but we'll go through these verses here and just notice three things that we pray for and that are so important and that some of us here, are, we, we know we have to pray for it. And the first is simply this. David prays, O Lord, help. He is in some degree of trouble because of his enemies. Verse 2, don't let my enemies triumph over me. Verse 3, the same, no one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame, but they will be put to shame who are treacherous without excuse. Uh, Verse 20 and 21, guard my life and rescue me. Let me not let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. Now, what is interesting in this is asking God to help you because of your enemies. I think a lot of us might want to say, what enemies? I, you know, I'm a peaceful person. I don't really have enemies. And Christians aren't really supposed to have enemies, are we? Anyway, we're supposed to love everybody, and, and everyone's supposed to like us. But that's not the Christian life. And I want us to stop and reflect on that a moment because I want to suggest this to you that if you don't have any enemies, then I suspect that you are not aware of the Christian battle. And if you are a Christian, you're a Christian who's asleep. The devil doesn't attack those who are asleep. We all have enemies. Now, some of them may be human beings. You know, there may be people who hate us because of what we do. There may be people who dislike us because of faithfulness to the gospel. There may be a whole range of different things, and we will have enemies, whether personal or, in other cases, ideological. Or we have, of course, our great enemy, the devil. We have things that war against us. We are in a spiritual battle, and anything that the devil can use to cripple us, to cause us to despair, to cause us to give up, is something that is our enemy. In verses 20 and 21, it's God's honor that is at stake. Integrity and uprightness is what David wants, but his enemies would see that as naive. And look at verse 19. See how my enemies have increased and how fiercely they hate me. He feels that he is surrounded by hostile, unscrupulous people. And so he cries out to God, O Lord, help. Now, I'm going to stress this again. I think we live in an age of soft Christians where we just do not (coughs) really expect there to be enemies. We live in an age of nice Christians where rightly we have rejected the kind of nastiness and uh, lack of love that has characterized sometimes some of God's people. But many of us may just not recognize a lot of the things that are happening to us as the work of the enemy. God describes a Christian as someone who is involved as a soldier in a spiritual battle. And some of us, we don't like that language, and some of us are not aware of what that involves. But others, 
and I'm sure that some of the people, some of you here as well, that you've, you've kind of grasped this in your own life. Sometimes you're in a fight and you're in a battle, and it seems to be going on forever. You've grown up or been taught or accepted a Christian theology which had the idea that you came along, you were David, there's Goliath, you sling a stone, Goliath falls down, you march on in continuous victory. But some of us experience the fact that our enemies seem to increase. See how my enemies have increased and how fiercely they hate me. It seems that it's like one of these um, sick computer games, which none of you, of course, will be involved in, where you lop the head off someone and then another two come up. And it looks as though you defeat one enemy, and it's just as though there are more coming. And sometimes it is incredibly overwhelming. And that is the, un- unquestionably the experience of David. Now, I want to say that as regards the, the church in Scotland and the church throughout Britain, it seems to me that we are facing a considerable number of enemies whose aim is, is to destroy us, to wipe us out. Not necessarily in a physical sense, but in the sense of making the church completely irrelevant. It's not just that. It's that we face enemies within, sometimes with with friends like we have in the church who needs enemies. We face enemies within, and we have to combat our own personal sinfulness as well. And we don't know what to do. It's, uh, I was down in Cambridge this past week, teaching a course there to a group of Christian leaders on communicating the gospel in in our culture and so on. And it was interesting because one or two of the younger ones, they were massively enthusiastic and everything was wonderful and everything was great and they were just going to go out and conquer Britain for Jesus and then the world the following week. They were just full and it was just great to see that. But a lot of the older ones were just battle-weary and worn and had almost just given up. And I think initially I probably didn't help things because I suggested that things were a lot worse than they feared. And you don't really want to hear that. But we, we are, at times, we feel as though we are being overwhelmed. When you consider the obstacles that are against us, even in this city, in Dundee and in the surrounding area, the obstacles that are against us communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who are starving and desperately need it, it's just so overwhelming. And sometimes we feel all alone and we're really stuck. And so we just pray, oh Lord, help. I want to suggest to you that if you've never prayed, oh Lord, help, then you've probably never really prayed. Prayer is not telling God what He ought to be doing. It's not even telling God who He is. It is us praising and worshiping God, but it's also us asking Him for help in this fierce battle that we face please don't be surprised. Don't let it surprise you, says Paul, that you face opposition. Please don't be surprised at that, but come to God, and about the only thing you can do, at least initially, is to, to plead for the help of the Lord 
in defeating our enemies. We can't. It's only He who can do so. The second prayer, second part of prayer is He asks for guidance. O Lord, guide. That's a general theme of this psalm as well. Uh, Obviously, in verse 4, show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Now, we had a very interesting discussion at the dinner table today. We were at uh, uh, very ecumenical today, day to day. We were around at uh, Church of Scotland Elders' house, Mr. John Ellis, and uh, there was a lovely Nigerian lady there from Logie's as well, and the debate got started straight away, pretty well, into the food about how do we know God is guiding us and the Lord speaking to us, and was prophecy still a gift today, and all that kind of stuff as well. And it was just a, it was a fascinating discussion. I love these kind of, of discussions and debates, not just because they're stimulating and it's good to discuss the Scriptures, but also because they are so practical. How do we know? Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. Now, one of the problems with guidance is simply this. So often we pray for guidance in what is effectively a quite selfish way. Don't take this wrong, but we often want to know what job to take, who to marry, and so on. Now, that's not wrong to ask, but if that is the focus of what we are asking, there is something that's wrong with it, and I'll tell you what's wrong with it. It's because the focus is on us. Lord, show me what to do here or to do there that will bless me and that will help me and will be good for me. And in a sense, that's using God like some kind of divine oracle so that our life will be better. And that's not what David is doing here. What David is doing here is he is concerned about the ability to distinguish between good and evil. What is right and what is wrong? How do I know the right thing to do? We are often, sometimes we are faced with choices, and both of the choices could be right. They might not be morally wrong. They might not be spiritually wrong. But often, we're in a situation where we need to work out what does does God's Word say? Hebrews says this, solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. One of the passages that we were discussing this afternoon was the guidance that was received as regards Moses, because it was suggested that the uh, midwives, when the, the babies were told, or when, sorry, the Hebrew midwives were told to, to kill all the Jewish babies, the males, that, um, that they, they received some divine revelation telling them not to, or at least there was some spiritual instinct that God gave them through the Holy Spirit. And it was also suggested the same for Moses' parents. And initially I thought, that, that's, that kind of makes sense. But then you go to the Bible and you look. And go to Exodus chapter 1 and you will see. In Exodus chapter 1 verse 16, this is what the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives. When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him but if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Now, the point about that in terms of guidance and knowing what was right and wrong, it's not as though the king of Pharaoh said this, and then God gave the the midwives 
a vision. It was they knew. They had been brought up with God's Word. They knew what God wanted. They knew it was wrong to, to kill these boys. And then later on in, in chapter 2, what about Moses' parents? A man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. And again, I'd never noticed that before. It wasn't that God told her, you need to hide that child. It's basically, she looked at the baby, and he was a bonny baby, not an ugly baby. What would she have done if he was an ugly baby? I don't know. It was, wasn't it great in church this morning, by the way, when we were here? Um, there's babies everywhere. I was going to say popping out all over the place, but you know what I mean. There were, it, was just, it was just babies everywhere. It was great. It's lovely to see. But can you imagine looking at a baby and going, ah, oh, that's a bonny child. I'll need to protect that child. Or looking, oh, that child said ugly. Just give them to the midwives and, and, and see what happens. But again, it, it, it wasn't that it was specific God. It was, I think God probably used just a, a mother's uh, natural instinct and admiration for her own child. But the point is this, in terms of guidance, going back to Psalm 25, the guidance that we need is not so much that God will tell us, today it's 6.45 and you will do this, and then you will do that, and then you will do that, and then you will do that. The guidance that we need is we need to know what is right, what is wrong, what pleases the Lord. And that is not always as easy as we would like to make out. Because if you go to back in Psalm 25, verse 5, guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior. Or verse 15, my eyes are ever on the Lord, for only He will release my feet from the snare. To get this guidance from God requires patience. See, I used to have a view of the Bible, and I think when you're a younger Christian, you may often have this, but as an older one as well, where you just say, ah, it's dead easy, it's in the Bible. Read it in the Bible, that's what you do. But there are lots of things the Bible doesn't mention, and there are lots of situations that we are in that the Bible doesn't give specific advice for, and the Bible is not just a narrative of rules and laws and morals. In fact, it's not that. The Bible is a story of human failing. The Bible is, above all, the story of Jesus Christ coming into the world. And sometimes you have to think, is, how is this right? How is this wrong? What should be happening here? How does this work? And in our own situation, it is not normally the case that God comes to us and says, do this, or go there, or don't go here. We were arguing this afternoon that sometimes you can, sometimes you can get an impression, don't get that bus or whatever. I told the story of uh, one of the covenanting preachers who went up, was on his way to Montrose from our broth, and when he got to the, the hill just before Montrose, he was absolutely certain that God was saying him, don't go over the hill, and he didn't, and he turned back, and he discovered later that there was a whole troop of soldiers waiting to kill him. And a lot of us like to think of God speaking to us in that way. But you could go through your whole Christian life with God never speaking to you like that. And if it does happen, it's by definition, it's something that's quite rare. And to expect your normal life to be guided in that way is, I think, fundamentally unbiblical because God calls us to Himself, calls us to live in relationship with Him, does grant us guidance, but urges us and pleads with us to live our lives 
according to the principles of His Word and the understanding, being able to distinguish between good and evil. And you distinguish between good and evil by constant use. You see, in Hebrews it says you get the solid food of God's Word once you've learned to use the milk. And as you, by constant use, use God's Word, you're able to distinguish what is right and wrong. Now, verse 8 helps us in that as well, because another thing that's required, as well as patience, is penitence. Verse 8, good and upright is the Lord, therefore He instructs sinners in His ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them His way. You see, what we need to do is, as Christian people say, Lord, guide me because I have a sinner's bias and a sinner's guilt. I'm not a blank slate, nor am I a righteous person in a position to judge. It's incredible how many atheists and secularists and, others, and other people say, well, I don't believe in God because God did this and God said this, and, because, and they set themselves in the position of being able to judge God. They can't. But equally, so many of us as Christians, we struggle with this whole idea of God guiding because we don't come to Him in, in penitence, in humility, recognizing that we are not the ones who, who are perfect, but we are the ones who are coming to, to God and saying, Lord, I, I don't get this. I don't understand this. I don't grasp this. Please help me. Verse 9, we've got to be obedient as well. He guides the humble in what is right. We have got to be biddable. We don't negotiate with God. And verses 12 and 14, what's tied in here is also reverence. Who then is the man that fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way chosen for him. And verse 14, the Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. Now, here's this picture you, that, that's a, a hard one for us to get, because the notion of us fearing God and reverencing God is for some of us quite difficult because there are two things that seem to be very different here. You would think if God was your friend, then why would you fear? Well, the answer is because He is God and because He is so utterly different from us and, and awesome. Let me... Uh, explain it in this way. I, we have a good friend uh, called Tom in, in Madrid, and some of you will know Tom. He's been here, spoken a couple of times, and we were with him in our summer holidays, and it was a, a I know this sounds strange, but it was a blessed time to be with him because he had major heart surgery in which he could have died. And the two days where he went, underwent that surgery in Madrid, it was really... Uh, hard going for his family, obviously, and it was just one of the most amazing phone calls I've ever got in my life when we were back staying in his house, and he and his wife, of course, were in the hospital, and my mobile phone went, and I looked at it, and I thought, why is Tom phoning me? This is, not Tom, but I thought, why is his wife using, because this guy, I'd, the night before, I'd been told it was really serious, the operation was more complicated, and so on, and uh, I picked up the phone, and said, yeah, hello. And this voice went, I'm back. <laughs> and it was, it's like Terminator, you know, <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> and it's just, it's one of the greatest phone calls I've ever received, if, the not, if not the greatest. It was just his voice, you know, he, he could speak within an hour of coming out of the, the kind of emergency place 
emergency bit. He was on the phone to tell us, I'm back, and, and so on. And the, I mean, pray for Tom, actually. He's still recovering. It's still a difficult slog for him, but the operation went really, really well. But here's the thing. Tom has a group of friends, and I'm grateful to be one of them, whom he calls the guys. And he sends us emails occasionally. There's about four or five of us who are the guys, and about what he's feeling, about his work, about things, all confidential and all the rest of it. But you're kind of like almost, no, it doesn't sound, a kind of inner circle. It's you're confident. You know, you've got people who you can, you can't share everything with everyone. If you are, if you can, there's something wrong with you. You're sharing way too much, and people don't want to know. But there are people, you do need people who are kind of close friends of yours, who you really can share with and trust and so on. Well, the word that's used here in terms of guidance is God confides, the Lord confides in those who fear Him. He makes His covenant known to them. It's saying you belong to God's inner circle, not like some kind of religious initiate group as we were looking at a little bit this morning, but just that kind of confidence and friendship and so on. And we're being told here, you receive that guidance, you receive that relationship with God as you revere and fear Him. In other words, here's the paradox. It's taught in a lot of Christian circles. If you come to God like, you know, Jesus is my friend. Um, there's this awful clip on YouTube. I'll send it to you if you want because it's just so bad. I've got it. That it has this kind of really, really cheesy 1970s kind of pop band singing a song about Jesus is a friend of mine and bouncing up and down, and just uh, the words, uh, I can't remember them all, but the, the whole cheese effect plus the words that they're saying, it's just awful. It's reduced Jesus to, I don't know, some kind of toy doll almost. And we think, we're, we're told, yeah, yeah, Jesus is my friend. I can talk to him like my best pal, and me and Jesus were like that, and so on. And, and that's often done in worship. That's done in different ways. And it's done with the best of motives, and it's done with this idea of friendship and so on. But actually what it's done is it's cheapened the Bible's teaching on it because the Bible's teaching is you enter into the Holy of Holies. It is totally awesome. It is the place where the angels veil their faces, and God says you can come in. You can enter. And so guidance is something in that sense which requires us to have reverence. Now, that's the way to look for guidance, penitence, obedience, reverence, love for God, humility, not what you find uh, if you've got your Bible. Have a look at Isaiah 47, verse 13. Isaiah 47, verse 13 says this, all the counsel you have received has only worn you out. Let your astrologers come forward those stargazers who make predictions month by month, let them save you from what is coming upon you. You see, that whole passage, Isaiah 47, by the way, is talking about how God's people were constantly looking for signs and wonders. That was the approach of the pagans. Now, God has at times in His revelation granted signs and wonders, and God works signs and wonders like no other being. No, no one's going to dispute that. But it is a mistake for Christians to say to God, Lord, you've got to guide me, and this is the way to do it. You will show me this miracle, you will give me this sign, or I won't do it. 
But the guidance we need is to know what is right and wrong. Lord, what would you have me to do? How do I love you in this situation? And for that, we need teaching, and God does teach. He is the great teacher. Seek, and you will find. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. You do not have because you do not ask. So we often pray, O Lord, guide, and we mean give us a neon light in the sky or something really dramatic, when God all the time says, I will guide, but I want to guide in this way, in my way, which is through relationship with Him and which involves us revering Him and being obedient to Him and loving Him and being patiently taught by Him. It's Sinclair Ferguson who says that the great problem with guidance is people don't realize that guidance is 90% perspiration and 10% inspiration. And what he means by that is it's working it out. It's thinking about it. Sometimes God shows us the path to go, and the only reason we don't get any further guidance is we haven't walked on it, and it's one step at a time. And then that's the third thing then we pray for. And let me just mention this. Um, we are to forgive. Look at verse 7. Remember not the sins of my youth. This is not a guy who's saying, these are my enemies, O Lord, and I'm a righteous person. He's saying, O Lord, help me. O Lord, guide me. O Lord, forgive me. Verse 11, for the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have multiplied. Free me from my anguish. Look upon my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. I need forgiveness, the psalmist is saying. He's talking about specific shortcomings. And he's saying that sin is not just in the past, in his youth, but is also in the present. See, you, you and I are never, ever going to get anywhere unless we live a life of continual repentance. And again, there's a casual approach sometimes we have. Yeah, Jesus forgives me. He died for me on the cross. That's wonderful. And we say that, and it's true, but we don't feel it because we don't actually really feel our sins are all that particularly bad. And we forget just how much it cost Christ. And that's why the communion is such a great reminder of that. Sin is not just past, but also present. You see, the problem in Britain today is not the state of the culture and the society out there. The problem is the state of the church and in here. And it's not even just other churches. It's where we are at as well. David sees all his enemies and he says, oh Lord, forgive, forgive me. He's not saying, I have these enemies because I'm bad, but he's saying, oh Lord, please forgive me. And how does God forgive? Verse 7, His divine grace. You are good, O Lord. His love. Verse 10, all the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of His covenant. Verse 14, the Lord confides in those who fear Him. He makes His covenant known to them. God forgives, not because we come and ask for forgiveness, not because we are good, not because we earn forgiveness. God forgives because we keep His covenant, except we don't. We don't keep His covenant. But Christ has kept His covenant on my behalf, and that's why we take the covenant meal, the bread and the wine speak to us of the forgiveness of Christ. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, and that's why we wait on Him. In you I trust, O oh my God, verse 2. Verse 5, you are God, my Savior. 
verse 8, good and upright is the Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. O Lord, forgive. Martin Luther argued continually that the Christian life was one of continual repentance, and we do need that. We are faced with enemies. We are faced with ignorance. We don't know where to go and which way to turn. We are confused and hurt and wounded and frustrated and angry and worn out and exhausted and weary. And we just, Lord, help, Lord, guide. And the great third part of that prayer is just, Lord, forgive. Because to know the forgiveness of God is the greatest thing of all. Look what that forgiveness brings. In this psalm, we're told what it is. I'll just mention personal fulfillment, family security, fellowship with the Lord, and further teaching. Oh, I feel so empty and unfulfilled. Be forgiven by God, and you will know. I feel so insecure and afraid in my family and everything else. The Lord grants that. Well, in my, in my, my fellowship is just so weak. No, no, your fellowship is with the Lord and what He brings. I'm so ignorant, but God teaches. God loves to teach. God sent Jesus to teach. God give us His Word. Our God is a speaking God. Our God is a communicating God. And it really is not rocket science. It's just that we keep trying to find other ways other than the way that God has given us. Lord, help us. Lord, guide us. Lord, forgive us. Now, put those three prayers, if you like, together with what Jesus says, that if you ask for anything in my name or according to my will, then it's granted to you. Well, how do we know what God's will is? Well, we know it from His Word. And it's God's will to help. It's God's will to guide. It's God's will to forgive. There is no need for a single person here not to know that and not to experience that. And I love it. I love um, I got a, a letter, a lovely letter from a lady who wrote after a, a, a debate and so on. And Well, it wasn't from her. It was from her, the man who was now her minister. And she became a Christian. And the reason she became a Christian, she said, I listened to what was being said. And I thought both speakers were very eloquent and spoke very well. But the atheist speaker, the one who I was inclined to agree with, Although he said a lot, he had nothing to say. There was no content. But the Christian speaker, there was, just, there was just so much that was in it. We live in an empty and vacuous society where it's dumbed down and where the world has so little to offer. And we have the gospel. And that gospel is so rich and so full and so wonderful. I would rather have all the enemies of God than have a life of peace and quiet without God's help, God's guidance, and God's forgiveness. And that means whatever happens, the gates of hell cannot prevail against His church. The gates of hell may prevail against our church. The gates of hell may prevail in certain circumstances, but they will never prevail against the church of Jesus Christ, never prevail against His people. And that's what we celebrate as we, we are here, in a sense, besieged and surrounded on enemies by all sides. And yet, as Psalm 18 puts us, 
He sets us in a spacious place where we are free to love and serve and follow Him. I will sing some of these words in a moment, but um, Joe, would you pray, please? And there's a 